Now we're talking about discipleship and uh, reflecting particularly now, having studied discipleship as a subject in the Gospels, now we're talking about discipleship as we find it in the book of Acts. Now we are reaching back into the Gospels once in a while to kind of pick up a train of thought, uh, but our, our primary purpose is to see how uh, discipleship is exemplified in the book of Acts. And we saw some very important preliminary things and now we're going, to, we're going to go through, in sort of a topical way, uh, some of these subjects that are found in the book of Acts relating to discipleship. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to finish up tonight, Lord willing, on the Spirit and, dis- and the disciple. And then we're going to talk about salvation in the disciple, soul winning in the disciple, service in the disciple, and a multitude of other things. So uh, we'll be studying those things in subsequent days. Now, uh, we, we talked about the the fact that discipleship uh, was related to the Spirit of God. And um, it's such an important part of the whole aspect of discipleship that we need to spend the time that's necessary to sort of pick up the concept of how the Spirit of God was really the motivating factor in the ministry of the disciples. That is what they did. They did not do in the power of their own strength, but in the power and the might of the Spirit of God so that produced through them was that which could glorify God. We were sharing with the men this morning, I just, I, we say this often, but we'll just repeat it for the sake of emphasis. An individual in himself has no ability to please God. Because he cannot please God in the flesh, then that individual obviously cannot glorify God. And then no flesh can glory in his presence. It's God's purpose that none of us be able to claim that we have accomplished anything on his behalf but rather that we were simply vessels that could be used. That's why the Apostle Paul said that uh, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency may be of God and not of ourselves. There is no real real, um, uh, ability on the part of the vessel to bring any glory to God. The vessel uh, is is merely that which is a clay pot, and uh, yet... We certainly can glorify God as we allow the Spirit of God to fill us and control us. And so the disciples in the book of Acts did not do anything in their own power and strength. What they did, they did to the glory of God. I I take that back. If they were in carnality at any point, as Peter was at one time and a few other places, obviously those things were not to the glory of God. And that's a historical record of what took place. So there is some carnality in the book of Acts. But when these men were being used of God in their ministry, in their preaching, in their teaching, in their missionary work, in their dealing with people, in their counseling, uh, in their healing, and all the rest that was done, it was not done in their power, but in the power of the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, we began by talking about the education of the disciples. And we talked about the education of the disciples before the triumphal entry, which was the first phase of the ministry of Christ in their midst. Second phase was in the upper room, and we talked about those very precise things, particularly in John 13 through 16, where there are a number of things concerning the ministry of the Spirit of God. And now we're ready for the third area of their training previous to the coming of the Spirit of God, and that has to do with the post-resurrection experience. What happened with these disciples in regard to the Spirit of God, preparing them for the ministry of the Spirit of God um, uh, before, or shall we say between, the uh, resurrection of Christ and uh, the time that the Lord ascended? 
40 days later. So look with me at Luke chapter 24. We'll look at just three passages and that very briefly as we move through this particular area of the disciples' education. In Luke chapter 24, uh, we read in verse 49 these words. Now remember, this uh, is the last day of the 40 days of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ among them. Christ made several appearances and showed himself to be alive. He has given them theology, particularly Christology, and particularly Christology as it related to the messianic promises of the Old Testament for each of the appearances for 40 days. He gave them insights during this time that he apparently withheld from them previous to the cross. Now that the cross was that which had taken place in the past, they understood a little better the mission of Jesus Christ. Now he brought into focus those Old Testament passages that had spoken concerning him and those Old Testament passages that spoke concerning his coming glory so that they were given a tremendous hope concerning his second coming. All of that was taking place during these 40 days. Now we are at the end of that period of time. And in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord is about to ascend, and it says in verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, again, let me say that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God's ministry was that of coming and departing. The Spirit of God came upon men. The Spirit of God did not indwell men as a permanent person living in them. Christ said that he, he is with you and shall be in you. We saw that last week. And so you see, the, the Old Testament phenomenon of the Spirit of God was that of coming upon men, the Spirit of God being with men. But the uniqueness of the Spirit of God indwelling men and then, of course, along with that indwelling, the potential of, the, of all of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that goes with it. The sealing, the, the uh, fruit of the Spirit, the uh, gifts of the Spirit, uh, the earnest of the Spirit, uh, the interceding ministry of the Spirit, etc., etc. All of these doctrines fall into line in the church. But you see, they were not true of the Old Testament. There was no sealing of the Spirit, no earnest of the Spirit. There was no gifts of the Spirit. It makes it very clear in Ephesians where it says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to all men. Part of what Christ did in his ascension was send gifts with the Spirit of God. And so there were no gifts in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that we didn't have gifted men. And it didn't mean we didn't have Spirit-led men or Spirit-even Spirit-controlled men. But the Spirit of God's ministry was different in the Old Testament. Now, until the day of Pentecost, this would hold true. The Spirit of God has not yet come. And so, therefore, it was necessary that these men didn't go out and try to do very much. Because at best, they could only accomplish what was accomplished in the Old Testament by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God was somewhat limited in his ministry in the Old Testament. That didn't mean he wasn't God and wasn't omnipotent, but he was limited by the fact that he did not indwell man. Not only that, 
But you see, Jesus Christ said, as we saw last week, that these men would not only do things comparable to what he had done, but would do even greater things than Jesus Christ had done. Well, how in the world could they do greater things than Christ had done? Because you see, the multiplying ministry of the, of the Spirit of God indwelling many men would accomplish far more for God than one man, even the Son of God, was able to do in what was a relatively limited ministry. The apostles touched many lives. Christ touched relatively few lives. So they did greater works. But they mustn't go out half-cocked and try to evangelize the world in themselves. They had to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to have any lasting results in order to glorify God. Now, in John's Gospel, there's a text that goes a little further than merely his promise here, where he says, I, want, I promise the Spirit of God's going to come, and I want you to wait until you be endued from power on high. There's something else that Christ did. We referred to it briefly last week, didn't look at the text. Let's look at John chapter 20. This also is part of the post-resurrection experience and education of the disciples. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Is that banging there? Okay, all right. Thank you, Ralph. John chapter 20. And this is 20 through 23. All right? In verse 20, it says... And when he had so said, that is, peace be unto you, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent, hath sent me, even so send I you. That's quite a statement in itself. Christ was sent in the power of the Spirit of God, and we are sent in the power of the Spirit of God. And when he had said this, he breathed, on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now remember, they could have asked the Holy Spirit. This is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the, in the sense of the New Testament age. It is not, it is not the earnest of the Spirit, uh, except in the sense that it was a guarantee of more to come, the down payment in a sense. It is not the sealing of the Spirit. It's none of that. What it is, is merely like in the Old Testament, men received the Spirit of God, men like Samson, Elijah, and Elisha, and so on. They received the Spirit of God. And I'm personally of the opinion, though Scripture does not specifically state this, but I'm personally of the opinion that the reason this was necessary was because they had to be of one accord and one mind in the upper room for ten days. In order to accomplish that, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. You can't do that. You put... 120 people together and uh, in carnality apart from the filling of the Spirit and believe me by the time 10 days passes living in co close proximity there are going to be problems so there was the necessity of receiving the Spirit of God he also gave them authority apostolic authority whosoever sins ye remit they are remitted unto them and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now this dealt in two specific areas. It dealt in the area of sound doctrine, for they had the ability to formulate New Testament doctrine in the power of the Spirit of God. And the other was strict discipline. They had the right and power 
to, uh, to discipline and bring about great discipline uh, in the early church previous to the canon of the New Testament being complete and God having spoken concerning the church. And so he gave them the Spirit of God and then gave them apostolic authority at this time. All right, so then you turn to the book of Acts and you see just a little further insight. And even though the book of Acts primarily deals with that which happened on the day of Pentecost and following, chapter 1 has a little piece in there of review telling what happened at the ascension of Jesus Christ. And this also was a post-resurrection experience, beginning in verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, forty days of appearances of the Lord, post-resurrection experience, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. When he breathed on them in Acts 20, that was not the fulfillment of that promise. That was temporary endowment of the power of the Spirit of God. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith, which saith he, ye have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times, chronos, the duration of time, or the seasons, kairos, the period of, with special circumstances, which the Father hath put in his own exousia, his own power, his own authority. But ye shall receive power. Now that's the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. But it is not really explosive power as much as it is inherent power. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now you'll notice again that the disciples went out two by two. The seventy went out ministering. Evil spirits were, were subject to them as Christ gave them the authority to cast out unclean spirits and all the rest. But they did not have the baptism of the Spirit, and they were not witnesses in all the world. He breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And again, they were not witnesses to all the world. But on the day of Pentecost, something took place. Something that became the permanent, if we can put it this way, normal experience, common experience, for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Namely, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the potential of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the earnest of the Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. All of those things now are normative for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, according to the epistle's teaching, the old way, only way that the old sin nature can be kept under control is by the Spirit of God. No other way. Otherwise, the old sin nature would run rampant and uh, we wouldn't have any victory at all in our life. There has to be the power of God's Holy Spirit for the control of that old sin nature. All right, so, ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. 
Now that is the ministry that Christ had concerning the Spirit of God between the resurrection and his ascension. Now, there is one other little detail of education in the matter of the disciples during the ten-day period between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. Realize that after, after that ten days, education would be over. They will graduate from school. Not that they're finished, they finish learning any more than you did when you graduated from high school. But they will graduate from, from grammar school in spiritual things, in a sense. And they now will have the promise of the Father. And they will then begin to minister. And they will, they will have the experience. The education came first. Then the experience came second. Now the upper room experience during this ten days of waiting is best illustrated by giving you three verses. Uh, two of them from Acts 1 the third from Acts 2. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, we already read that, let's read it again, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard from me. Then verse 14, and these all continued with one accord, I contend, that that requires the ministry of the Spirit of God, in the Old Testament sense at least. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. Now, incidentally, the word here, with one accord, is an interesting word. I just can't help but give you this. Homo... Thumas. That word is a word that was used concerning the inner, the inner unity of a body of people. And it was a political term. When a legislature was totally unanimous on a decision, then they were said to be homo thumus. Total unanimity. It means that that if they, uh, if, if they were to uh, seek to make a decision, and they did make a decision, that there would be unanimity among them. I, I'm tempted to do something, and I'm not going to do it, all right? And that's teach the principle of unanimity in the New Testament. There's a, that, that's a whole other doctrine. But, you know, it's a fascinating thing. I've got to show you one thing. I, I'll yield to temptation just a little bit. Look at Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll see, really, that this is the goal that every congregation should have. And it's something the pastor can't do alone, the elders can't do alone. It takes the whole body involved in a thing that the Apostle Paul called the work of the ministry. Now notice what it says. It says in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians that he gave pastor teachers. Now, mind you, he gave evangelists as well, and he gave prophets earlier, and he gave apostles earlier, and so on. But nevertheless, he gave pastor teachers, that's my gift, and that's my ministry, that's my responsibility, and it says, for the equipping, the word there means to equip, kartartidsmos, means prepared fully so as to make fit, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. 
for the work of the ministry. And when you're doing the work of the ministry, what are you involved, involved with? You are involved with edifying the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ. Now, don't you, any of you say that you have the spiritual gift of tearing down because there is no such spiritual gift. It's all building up, all right? For the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a, a mature man, perfect man, mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the of fullness of Christ. All right, now notice, notice the concept of unity in verse 13, along with some other things. But till we all come in the unity of the faith, then that we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, the word slight, you know what the word slight there is? Kubia. From which we get the word cube. And it means literally throwing the dice. By the slight of men, by the, by the throwing of the dice of men, and cunning craftiness, the gambling of men. It doesn't mean gambling in the sense of, of gambling for profit here. It's talking about the fact that they're gambling with your souls. Literally. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things who is the head, even Christ. Notice now. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The concept of unity fitly joined together. That's the goal. And that's what the Spirit of God can, can do when men are Spirit-controlled, walking in the Spirit, living after the Spirit, and uh, allowing the Spirit of God to have His will and way, exercising your spiritual gifts, doing the work of the ministry, building people up. There will be unity in the body of Christ. Now, there was unity among these 120 people, 10 days long. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Same idea. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. Now, again, the ministry of the Spirit of God and the education of the disciples was this matter of their oneness and their unity and their patience in waiting for that ten-day period while, for some reason, the Lord withheld the promise from the Father. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons. One reason, perhaps, would be so that the, because the disciples needed the experience of waiting. Another reason would be because it would fulfill the Old Testament fully by bringing this, having the Spirit of God come on the day of Pentecost, for Pentecost spoke of the coming of the Spirit of God. So God's timing is perfect. But there was a 10-day period where they finished up their education, in a sense. They took their finals during those 10 days, and uh, they passed with flying colors because they had the Spirit of God breathe upon them. Now, that basically is the education of the disciples, a very, very important aspect of the ministry of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. All right, now we want to talk about the experience of the disciples. And so therefore, let's look at Acts chapter 2, and uh, let's look at three aspects of the ministry of the Spirit of God in this 
particular text. Let me read again verse 1 and reading through verse 3 first of all. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now I want you to understand that the first thing that happened, as far as the ministry of the Spirit of God was, he came. The Spirit of God came. And in this particular case, there was a dramatic coming. It was a, the place was shaken. There was a rushing mighty wind. There was a visible sign of the Spirit of God, the cloven tongues of fire. Even as there was a visible sign that the Spirit of God came upon Jesus Christ at his baptism in the form of a dove. So there was a visible sign of the ministry of the Spirit of God coming. Part of the reason, of course, is because the, this was the first time that this had ever happened. And this was the initiation of something which now is the common experience. So the Spirit of God never has to come again. The Spirit of God has come, that is, in the church period, he, he has come to permanently indwell believers. Incidentally, during the, during the tribulation period and the millennial period, he will have a different ministry again different than the experience of the church age today, much like the ministry that he had in the Old Testament. All right, so now the second thing then is the filling. The filling of the Spirit. First of all, the coming, then the filling. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this particular case, and in three other cases in the book of Acts, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Incidentally, uh, not getting into that subject, but let me say those tongues were known languages. The word means that. They were because they're described in this same chapter. And um, so definitely what they spoke in was not a, a, a garble, but rather was known languages. Each man understood in his own language. That was at the time of the coming of the Spirit of God. There was a filling with the Spirit. Thirdly, then, there was the baptism of the Spirit. And the best way to uh, find that, though the word is not specifically used here, it's used later on, it says in verse 5, and they were dwelling at the... Uh, um, at that time in, at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation of the earth. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, were confounded, because every man heard them in their own tongue. Moving through that text, it gives all the languages, which all were guttural, staccato languages that they spoke in there. And then it goes on in the, in the book of Acts and talks about the fact that others received then the Spirit of God, were baptized into the body of the uh, of the church, the body of, of the church, and it says, um, verse uh, 41, they, were glad, they that gladly received his word were baptized. That may refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It may refer to uh, water baptism. And then you go on through the text and you see again, the word baptism became a very common term. So there is the baptism of the Spirit of God that happened as well at that time. Now you see, the Spirit of God, and I need to emphasize this for the sake of our purpose without going into the total doctrine of pneumatology, the Spirit of God did not enter a vacuum. The Spirit of God were, entered, in this initial coming of the Spirit of God, entered into 
prepared men, men that were prepared by the Word of God for the reception of the Spirit of God. Now, mind you, there is no preparatory time necessary in the same sense as the apostles. But I think it's important for us to note that the Spirit of God entered these men, and they were prepared men. They were prepared, even as people are prepared today by the ministry of the Spirit of God, to receive Jesus Christ. At the point of salvation, they also received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, that's the experience of these men. But now think with me, if you will, concerning the explanation of the disciples. How did the disciples explain what took place that day? You see, that becomes then the key factor concerning the Spirit of God's ministry in relationship to discipleship in the book of Acts. We're not going to go into all the passages that deal with the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, because that would take uh, quite a bit of time. Um, but we're simply going to use this Acts chapter 2 experience and their explanation of what happened so that we can understand the ministry of the Spirit of God in the disciples in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. Here is the explanation of the disciples. Let me start in verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. Perhaps I should just uh, give you the background. They have accused these men of being drunk. Others say, uh, uh, no, uh, they're not drunk, but you know, something's happened. But others were perplexed, and they were saying, what meaneth this? And others said, mocking, these men are full of new wine. They're drunken. All right? Now, Peter says, listen to me. That's the introduction to his message, verse 14. In verses 15 and 16, he relates what happened to prophecy. Very misunderstood two verses. Let me explain them after I read them, all right? For these are not... Drunk, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, just in a word, he relates this to prophecy. Following, in verses 17 through 21, he quotes the prophetic utterance. He quotes Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. Notice what he says. And it shall come to pass. Here's the quotation from Joel. Very, very much. This quotation from Joel is often really misinterpreted. So watch it carefully now. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there are some people that say that what Peter was saying here was, that this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Well, let me ask you something. Is it the last days? 
Let me ask you something. Was the sun turned into darkness? A record of that? Was the moon turned into blood? Was this the great and notable day of the Lord come? You see, he is quoting Joel, not saying this is the thing that Joel prophesied, but saying to them, listen, you know Joel chapter 2, and a similar passage also in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And incidentally, Zechariah 12, 10 makes it absolutely imperative that you interpret that, that turning of the, uh, the moon turning blood and the sun being darkened and all the rest in terms of the future. That is, the church age is here. There will be a tribulation period. And at a point in the tribulation period, these phenomena will happen. By the way, the Jews believed that. It was in their theology. They believed that the Spirit of God would come down and that, there would, that Israel would be saved and that there would be a, there would be a, a great, a marvelous move of the Spirit of God. It would be, people would prophesy and all of the rest and there would be a, a great uh, astrological things that would take place. They believed that from Joel and Zechariah. And check Jew Jewish theology, you'll find that they believed that in, t in the time of Jesus Christ, that such a day was to come as far as the nation of Israel was concerned. So he's not saying that this is a fulfillment of that. He's saying to them, you know that's going to happen. Why should you be so surprised that some little thing like this happens on a day like this? Why are you accusing me of being drunk just because... The Spirit of God has come upon me when later on the Spirit of God's going to come upon men and they're going to do what I'm doing. This is like that, literally. This is like that which Joel spoke. It is a similar experience. But you see, in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery, hidden. And so therefore, Joel wasn't speaking of what would take place on the day of Pentecost. He was speaking of what would take place later on and that would, take, that would take place in connection with the last days. It would take place previous to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. They understood this to be, a, to be something that would take place in reference to the Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming right here. But one thing they didn't understand, and that was that there also was the same thing that would happen after the Messiah came the first time. It happens after the Messiah comes the first time. It happens before Messiah comes the second time. But it is a similar type of experience. And incidentally, I think that one of the things that will probably happen in that end time is that there will be also the kind of miraculous ministry that, the, that was, is seen in the book of Acts be great, marvelous wonders that will be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There at the end of the tribulation, previous to the coming of the Lord, even though it will be during a time of great, of great persecution. So the first thing he did was relate this experience to the prophecy as far as these Jews were concerned. Secondly, he related it, this experience, to Jesus Christ. Related to... Jesus Christ. Notice that in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles 
and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, Jews, have taken, and by wicked hands, Romans, have crucified and slain. Both the Jews and the Romans are indicted in Peter's word here. The Jews took him, and the wicked hands that slew him were, of course, the Romans. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up. Verse 23 implies the cross. Verse 24 implies the resurrection, or gives us the resurrection. Notice how he puts it together. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. That's from Psalm 16. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, in my flesh also shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave, will not abandon my soul in hell, in Hades, neither wilt thou allow thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. When we were in Israel, we saw it. What is purported at least to be the sepulcher of David. Therefore, being a prophet, David a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. He relates this experience to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating to them that, first of all, there had to be the cross, and then, of course, the resurrection, ultimately the ascension and then the promise of the Spirit. And then after he talks about the resurrection, then he gives them the promise that Christ had given concerning the coming of the Spirit of God. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, that is the position of Christ today, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. What you are seeing is that which the Spirit of God, uh, that which the Spirit of God is doing, and the Spirit of God is that one that Christ promised that He would send. Remember that it says in John 14:26, "He shall testify of me." Who's speaking? Jesus Christ. He shall testify of Christ. And then it says in John chapter 16, verse 14, "He shall glorify me." Who's the me? Christ. The purpose of the ministry of the Spirit of God is not to witness to the, to the Spirit of God. The ministry of the Spirit of God is to witness to Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Spirit of God is not to glorify the Spirit of God. It's the purpose of the Spirit of God to glorify Jesus Christ. A theology today that glorifies, glorifies the Holy Spirit is an erroneous theology. A theology today that spends its time witnessing 
to what the Spirit of God accomplishes is not a correct theology. That does not mean we can't talk about it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study pneumatology. But you see, we've got to have the focus correct. The Spirit of God does not speak of himself. The Spirit of God does not produce of himself. What the Spirit of God does is speak of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God produces the life of Christ in us. It is his ministry. In a sense, it is a background ministry. A ministry of leading people to witness and to work and to serve and to love and to care. And you go through the New Testament and you see the Spirit of God is involved all the way through. But what's his goal? Glorify Christ. Honor him. Witness of him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that the Holy Spirit has come. The gospel of Jesus Christ is... Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. The Spirit of God does not witness of himself. He witnesses of Jesus Christ. All right. So there is a, the related experience brought out a message not glorifying and magnifying the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He did not want the people to focus on the tongues he did not want the people to focus on the miracle. He did not want people to focus upon the phenomenon. He as quickly as possible got off of all of that and started talking about Jesus Christ. That's our message today. It's the message of Christ. All right. Now, third thing he did. He related this experience to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to Israelites. How does it fit? Look at verse 36. Therefore, after quoting something from Psalm 110, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. What's he bringing out? He's bringing out the concept of judgment. He's saying that this is proof and pledge to the nation of Israel that Jesus is Lord. Now, there's an astounding thing here. Do you remember that our study last week took us over to the Gospel of John in those passages in 13, 14, 15, and 16? And you remember that we read these words, that the Holy Spirit is come to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. But not sin according to what you think is sin. God didn't allow us that option of sin because they believe not. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. 
Now, you've got to understand this again. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and this is why when we witness, we've got to cooperate with him, because this is what he's doing. When you know what he's doing, then you know how to cooperate better, right? Okay? Believe not on Jesus Christ. That is the sin that he convicts of. What does Peter drive home? Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose. Believe on him. Not the message? Okay? What also did he stress? Mind you, by the power of the Spirit of God now. He stressed the fact that Jesus Christ has ascended to the Father. Now mind you, what that means is this. He convicts the world of righteousness. There's only one way he could ascend to the Father. And that is if he lived up to a perfect standard. The standard is placed before you. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin because you believe not. He convicts us of righteousness because our righteousness falls short of his righteousness. His righteousness is perfect enough he can go right into the presence of God. And that's what's required to get into the presence of God. And so a person says, but there's no hope for me then. Correct. That's why we need his imputed righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit's convicting the world of. What does he emphasize? That Jesus Christ went into the presence of God. Then, of judgment. Of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. If you don't live up to the standard, obviously the, the prince of the world who did not live up to the standard is judged already, and you're going to be judged with him. Not because God wanted to send you to hell. He's not willing that any should perish. But he will send men to hell if they persist in sinning the sin of unbelief in regard to Jesus Christ. Because of the standard, he has to do that. And therefore, he convicts the world of judgment that if they don't believe, they've had it. What does he say to Israel? You crucified him. You've had it. You are judged. So you see, he is cooperating with the ministry of the Spirit of God in what he is teaching and what he is saying. And that's the heart of the message of the apostles in the book of Acts as they were empowered by the Spirit of God. Now let me show you what I mean in regard to this being when they said that he is the Christ, that, that this really is a pledge to Israel, that Jesus is Lord and that he will judge. Look at Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest by which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is refreshing, yet they would not hear. Now this is a judgment passage, prophetically, concerning the nation of Israel, given by Isaiah. With stammering lips. With, and you know what the word means? It means guttural, staccato language. Can I tell you something? Every one of the tongues mentioned... In the book of Acts chapter 2, and it lists them there, every one of them is unlike Hebrew. Hebrew is poetic. It's a, it's a musical language. Every one of the other languages mentioned there are 
staccato, guttural languages. I, the illustration I like best is, you know, that the, the word for woman in the Old Testament is isha. Isn't that pretty? You know what the Greek word for woman is? Gune. And can you imagine some woman, you know, that's a Hebrew coming to the temple and hearing this great message on womanhood, you know, and the guys up there calling women gune. Now they hear that on the streets, but you don't talk like that in church. You know, that's the idea. The Hebrews expected that, that Hebrew was sort of a heavenly language. And that if God ever spoke, that God spoke Hebrew regularly. In fact, God couldn't speak any other language. Obviously, it's spoken to Moses in Hebrew. He'd spoken to the prophets in Hebrew. God couldn't speak in any other language for sure. And so as a result, they, they expected that if they're going to hear a message, it's going to be in Hebrew. All of a the sudden, they hear the message, and it's not in Hebrew. Not only that, but in keeping with Isaiah chapter 28, it's a staccato, guttural language. Gune. And as a result, they would be shocked. They're hearing the word of God, and they're hearing it in these languages like Parthian, and like Arabic, and these other languages. And they're hearing it in and around the temple court. Every man hearing in his own language. These would be Jews from all over the world, spread by Alexander the Great, who had come together to the city of Jerusalem for this Feast of Pentecost. It was one of the feasts that had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Alexander the Great had taken many Jews into the far corners of the earth to be governmental leaders in his kingdom. Now Rome had taken over, but these men were still governmental leaders, and their sons were governmental leaders, and they were a new generation. And now this new generation were born in the language of the Cappadocians, back in the hills of Cappadocia, a language that was hardly known by anyone else in the world except within a, a radius of about 40 or 50 miles. It was a language that was very isolated. They came to Jerusalem expecting to hear some good sermons in Hebrew. And they hear it in this guttural staccato language of the Cappadocian hills back by the Black Sea. And they could not understand for the life of them how in the world these people ever learned this. It was a phenomenon beyond them. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 28. You need a further confirmation? Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written. What law? Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. The word law is a catch-all for the Old Testament. In the law it is written. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. Who what people? The Jews. And yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. That is connecting the two together. But now notice the next verse by way of application. Wherefore, here's the purpose for tongues in the New Testament. Wherefore tongues are for a sign. A sign of judgment. Not to them that believe. It's not to be used for the edifying of Christians, etc. It tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Who are the not believers? They are the Jews, because it's this people to which this was directed. Wherefore tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, and so on. But prophesying serveth not to them who believe not, but for them who believe. Prophesying is that which edifies, that which the Word of God would give to us. It's preaching, basically. 
So you see, what's happened here is this. On the day of Pentecost, God did a twofold thing. He, first of all, gave the Spirit of God to empower men to witness and glorify Jesus Christ. And then, He also gave to the nation of Israel a sign of their own judgment. And that was the advent of the Spirit of God. Incidentally, then, in each case where tongues are mentioned in the book of Acts, in each case, it's here in Jerusalem, in Samaria, later on in the house of Cornelius, and then further in the Ephesians with the disciples of John. All four of those places in the book of Acts where it's mentioned, there are always Jews present. Always. Why? Because tongues were for a sign, not to those that believe, but to those who do not believe. It was a sign to the nation of Israel of the coming of the Spirit of God and the coming in of the church age. And so what happens then? All right, now, very quickly, in one and a half minutes, I'm going to give you a quick summary. Because in the book of Acts now, the book of Acts becomes the pattern, not the pattern of tongues, because as the Jews began to drop from the picture, the necessity of the tongues was less and less and less. I'm sure that it was practiced in Corinth because of the fact that there were many Jews in Corinth, and that was still an active sign. It was practiced in those, those disciples of John because they were Jews, and they needed to know that that's what the Spirit of God had done, and so on. So uh, th- these were all things involved. But primarily the ministry of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts in reference to the disciples was so that they could be empowered to tell the message of Jesus Christ, to share that message, and for the purpose of, as far as the disciples in that time were concerned, put down those things in Scripture that were necessary so that there could be a canon of Scripture giving us truth that is absolute. Now, In regard to the Spirit of God, in the epistles we are taught that the Spirit of God baptizes, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that He indwells, Romans chapter 8, and also Romans 5, 5, that the Holy Spirit desires to fill. Scripture gives us a number of things that happen because of the filling of the Spirit of God. It tells us that we imitate Jesus Christ. Got a whole list of scriptures for that. Try to have them in your notes for you. There is the perception of the Word of God. I've got a list of scriptures for that. We are to witness, like in Acts 1.8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and so on. And also 2 Corinthians 3-5, through 5, that whole section there. We are to, in the power and the filling of the Spirit, uh, we will have guidance. Got some scriptures there. Assurance, worship, prayer, helping others. The fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ formed in the believer by the Spirit of God. There is the threefold aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. The first three, love, joy, peace, are inward. The second three are upward, or outward, long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And the last three are upward, faith, meekness, temperance. And so you have the, the ministry of the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit, helping others, prayer, worship, assurance, guidance, witness, perception of the Word of God, and the imitation of Christ. All of those things involving the, the filling of the Spirit. So he baptizes, indwells, desires to fill. He seals Ephesians 4.30. And by the way, the seal does not mean to seal off like you seal a jar. It means to authenticate. It was the signet ring. It meant to authenticate. It meant, to, it meant the matter of ownership. 
It meant that he ratified something, a document, uh, the new covenant is what he ratified, and that you are guaranteed. It's the guarantee of the Spirit that is given. So um, there is the sealing of the Spirit. There is the earnest of the Spirit, which is the down payment, the concept of the Holy Spirit being a down payment, proof that there is more to come. And that more to come is uh, the, the fact that we someday will be glorified with Christ. Then, of course, there was the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well. So those are the things the Spirit of God is doing as revealed in the epistles. And there's something you can do wrongfully in regard to the Spirit of God. There are actually five things that can be done to the Spirit of God. Two by the unbeliever, three by the believer. The unbeliever can uh, resist the Spirit, Acts chapter 7 verse 51. He can blaspheme against the Spirit, Matthew chapter 12. That had to do primarily with the ministry of Christ on the earth uh, and is not primarily something people can do today in the same sense, though they can also reject Jesus Christ. But those two things the unbeliever can do. The believer can grieve the Spirit of God, he can quench the Spirit of God, and he can lie to the Holy Spirit like Ananias and Sapphira did. Those are things we can do negatively in regard to the Spirit of God. Positively, what can we do? Well, we can't do anything. Because the scripture in the passive voice tells us, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's only one way that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the use of 1 John 1.9. When we use 1 John 1.9 and admit, agree with God concerning our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the ministry of the Spirit of God is active today, even as it was in the book of Acts. It is for us. He is for us. He is the one who makes intercession with us with groanings that cannot be uttered. He is the one who causes the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. He is the one who must be in control of our lives or we will be under the domination of the old sin nature. And so we need to be aware of that very, very clearly. Thus, we conclude this matter of the Spirit of God and his relationship to his disciples. I hope I've whetted your appetite to study out more concerning the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. And next week we'll talk about salvation, the salvation message and so on in the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this time then that we've had. By your Spirit, reign in our hearts, we pray. Oh, Father, we so long to be used of you. We long to have the the, 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 the skill of proclamation that the early apostles did, which came by the Spirit of God. And we know, Lord, that, that as you empower us, that that will become ours, each one of us, so that we can be witnesses, so that our lives might be pleasing to you, that we might see the imitation of Christ produced in our life, not because we're trying, but because we're trusting the Spirit of God to produce in us that which will please you. Grant this, we pray, and dismiss us with thy blessing. We'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen.